Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome our guest, Dr. Eric uh, Halls-Apple, author of Identify Your Purpose in Life. Uh, Eric, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for uh, being on the show. So, Eric, let's start off with you uh, telling us about your professional background. Yeah, I uh, I came out with an MBA from Colorado State University in the mid-1980s and started in real estate. Uh, was immediately successful. It's just something that really hit for me. Uh, and I was I worked for an Australian group a couple of years out of MBA, first as general manager, and then I ran the North American division with Western Canada and was moved to Los Angeles, had offices in Denver and Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, spent a lot of time in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, which is close to your home stomping ground, I know. Oh, yeah. Back in at, fact, I grew up time. 20 minutes away from King of yeah. Prussia and spent a lot of time there. You had a big office complex there. Anyway, I, you know, I, I traveled extensively there and, you know, had all the outward trappings of, of success the salary, the apartment, the Mercedes, all those things. But I just was really not happy. Uh, a little while later, I made the decision to leave that and and head back to, uh, to college to get a PhD in economics. I thought I wanted to teach and find more purpose in my life. I met my wife and I found yoga around that time. Uh, and then a few years after that, my oldest brother introduced me to meditation and it was a game changer, although for years I didn't come out, you know, I didn't, I didn't talk about it. I just did my yoga and meditation practice. And it was just a real game changer for me to, to uh, be happier, more happy, successful, satisfied. Got out with my doctorate and went back into business and taught part-time at the university as an adjunct for about 20 years and ran a real estate business in Northern Colorado. And after uh, it was mostly developing, had a small company, we built it. And just one by one, people started noticing a difference in me and and uh, started introducing them to mindfulness and other, you know, transformational practices. And the company here adopted a, a, a vision statement of mindfully creating community. And we've been very blessed in the local community, work a lot with nonprofits and uh, still very active in development and really Hopefully, I mean, for myself anyway, and why I've written the book Profit with Presence is to share with others how you can, you know, stay, be in business, make it, make a, make a really good living, make a difference along the way, be more present, be more mindful. And that's what my next question was. Why did you write this book? <laughs> you know, and, and um, I'm not very enthralled with the state of the world today, and I'm not a politician. I'm not a podcaster. I'm not a lobbyist. And I just that I, you know, I think in the end, business will be the one that brings us out of this if we come out of it. So I just wrote a, a book to say, you know, the mindfulness community, many of them think mind, money is dirty. In the business community, mindfulness is woo woo. And I wrote a book to say it doesn't have to be that way. Mindfulness has a role in capitalism. I'm a capitalist. I love capitalism. I think what's missing from it is, you know, a little more consciousness, a little more longer term thinking little more, hey, those that can help others, you know. So that's why I wrote the book, to try to move the world a little bit, make a little bit of a difference. You know, it's funny, uh, here in Vietnam, uh, they realized uh, that the communist system actually doesn't work from a uh, from the standpoint of being able to feed people and encourage people to um, maximize their potential. And so now you have a hybrid of, you know, one government, but everything else is totally open. You can do anything, start anything, be anything uh, that you want to be. And uh, you would be amazed at how sophisticated the cities are, the technology, mm. everything is. 
So I think being a capitalist is a good way to bring people together. And why, why do you think uh, entrepreneurship and capitalism can solve a lot of problems? Because you talk about that in the book. Creativity, freedom, creativity, um, potential. I mean, people can follow their own heart, you know, and be their own captains of their own ship. And just, you know, in the world, I love uh, Joseph Schumpeter, Creative Destruction. I mean, we're constantly, you know, destroying the old and creating the new in capitalism. Just look how, you know, I can't believe in 1996, just when I was coming out of the University of Colorado State University, was the first time I remember doing an email with a professor as I was finishing my dissertation. 1996, by 2000, you know, we're in the dot-com boom, you know, and just how we've come, how fast things change. And now, you know, AI is coming. Who knows? I mean, there's some there's some things to be worried about with that. And there's also tremendous hope, you know, with uh, with that. I just think capitalism, you know, with, with the, the creativity and the way capital flows can make a huge, huge difference in the world very quickly. And I think it's here to stay. I mean, I don't see think it going anywhere, not in the United States anyway. So I say, why not embrace it? And it's got to be okay to make money. You know, it's got to be okay. I think every culture finds out that it's a good thing to make money. But like you say in the book, it's up to the people who've made a lot of money to make sure that they give back. Because that's why countries like Venezuela fall is when the wealthy yeah. don't do their part. And the other people yeah. are drowning and it's one person on a lifeboat and 300 people on the other lifeboat and it's sinking. If you don't yeah, do well, something, eventually they're going to take it away from you. So you might as well do some good with it. I, I'm wondering this, at what time in your life did you realize you weren't living in the present? Because you talk a lot about that in the book. And I'd say that's a repetitive <laughs> discovery. I find it almost every day. You know, and that being present is a matter of notice when you're not present and being present again. The first time would be, you know, back in that time in my early 30s when I, you know, really needed to make a change. I was overweight, drinking too much, you know, successful in business. But I really I really knew I wouldn't be around very long if I didn't make some change. But I didn't know it was presence at that time that was missing. I just, you know, I just knew there was something missing and I went searching. Later on, you know, I think I I learn more about it and i also learn more about myself that i'm i'm very much intellectual i love that kind of thing and that can you know you think you can think your way through anything uh and i've just found that i can't you know i have to have a way of being uh and feel my way around a lot of things so i i'd say it was the first time in my 30s but i've probably found it you know really noticed dramatic midlife crises that you know at, at different stages 40 50 60 i find myself constantly having to reinvent myself and notice myself getting stuck and not being present you know and i just constantly have to just keep engaging and and doubling down on my practices and it's not a like a one and done phenomenon you know i'm not like present and i got it and i'm enlightened i'm in this work because i need it not because i'm enlightened yeah, but didn't, but didn't you always think there'd be an age where everything like fell together? And yeah. I, I, I found it refreshing because I feel the same way at 62 that I feel like I'm still I'm still learning. I'm still changing all those things. Mm -hmm. And some of those things are very positive. Yeah. Some of those things are very uh, frustrating at the same time because you think that you'd be more settled. But it seems that that's never yeah. the case. Then you write a book and think you know something. And, you know, a week later you hit something and you go, I don't know nothing. You, right. <laughs> so it's constant. I, yeah. I think it's a constant phenomenon. And being human is, you know, not being present in so many ways. And just keep realizing I just got to let that go and come back to the present moment and keep keep moving, keep going, you know. Yeah. What's your definition of mindfulness? And, and please tell us some of the benefits you mentioned, mentioned in the book about mindfulness. You know, I, for on the business context, and my niche is just saying, you know, this is okay in business. You know, there's a lot of people that are, you know, deeper and more steeped in, in mindfulness practices than I am. But where I, where I feel I have a little niche is that I've been successfully brought it into a business community, you know, community and, and espouse it that way. So to me, in a business sense, mindfulness, I boil it down to one word, focus, the ability to focus on what I choose to focus on. 
at the exclusion of all else for that time. And then noticing when I go away and I'm not focused and come back to it again. And also what we work hard on is, can I train that focus at work to be really be at work when I'm at work? And then when I get home at night, can I turn it and really focus on my family and those who are important to me rather than dragging that with me all the time, you know? So um, there's longer definitions, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, the ability to pay attention on purpose, you know, without judgment, et cetera. But I really think for business, it's, you know, can I focus? Can I go to meetings without having my iPhone on and my chat on and all these distractions all the time? Can I can I just really focus on what I choose to focus on? And the mind, what was the other part of the question, Mark? Was the practices? Of yeah. Mindfulness? Yeah. yeah. I, my, my question was some of the benefits that you oh. mentioned in the book. And then I have another question about the other stuff. Yeah. So if you could. Yeah. Less stress. I think is, is, you know, stress is in thought. What we think about things, it isn't what really happens to us. You know, it's our, our inability to accept what happens, our denial about what happens and to stay in thought about it. You know, my, my uh, experience is that peace and joy come in the gaps. The name of my nonprofit is living in the gap and the gaps between thoughts, which can be extended a little bit that's where peace and joy and happiness come but stress comes from that so reduction of stress improved relationships is is a huge thing you know if i can start listening to people versus judging and labeling listening is a huge uh path to better relationships better communication so those are a couple of them what are the 12 pillars of mindfulness and if you can only focus on a couple which one should they be you know, the first three pillars are what I call foundational, which are, you know, uh, be present and practice mindfulness, identify your purpose in life. And the third one is uh, create clarity, vision, intention, commitment, and habits. Those are the, the, those are the, like the foundational pillars. The rest of the pillars are around mindset, you know, different little mindset tools. Once we become present, how do we, how do we actually do it. So, I mean, and just to, if there's the lowest hanging fruit for me, if I was only going to do one thing, it would be gratitude. You know, practicing gratitude is, is short. It's simple. It's an, it's an immediate mindset shift. Um, so just one would be, you know, be present and practice mindfulness. Everything of consequence I found in life requires a practice. Every athlete, every musician, every business person that I know that's been successful has really had a practice, you know, it's taken some work and some effort and mindfulness is no different. So the number one thing would be to get started and, and develop some sort of practice that works for you. that allows you to be more present in your life. But it doesn't happen overnight. No, it's a process. And it's like you said before, you know, you know, what have you, when have you noticed you're not being present? I mean, man, I just find it's, you know, like that proverbial onion. You get a little bit off and you see a little bit more. So it's a practice. It's continual. We always get lulled into that. I know, and I've got it figured out until we get, as Mike Tyson says, every, everyone's got a plan until they yeah. get hit in the mouth. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so it's one of the most concept. famous sayings now. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Anyway. So it's, it's a practice and it's evolving and, you know, finding a way to get some feedback is huge too. Uh, Budweiser and Disney are focused on making money, but lost customers when they thought they were doing something positive for society. What, what's your take on, on this? And I'm not talking about the politics behind it, but for what they tried to do, which they thought was right. And, um, and, and should businesses just focus on financial success or should they be making a statement, uh, you know, to take a, maybe a side or a position about society issues? Well, I think that's a personal choice. I, I, I mean, I, I get it why that question is there. Like, for instance, you know, I, I like yoga. I ended up opening up a yoga studio, lost a small fortune doing it. And I hated running a yoga studio, but I love yoga. But I also learned so much opening it and it deepened my practice. And, you know, that led me to more be more mindful and no other see a lot of other options. You know, so I, I get the question, but really. If you're not, if you're not happy and satisfified, what's the, what is, what are we in business for? 
you know, and I just think the profit only motivation is just is just back to front, you know, that it's I, I think success revolves around happiness and satisfaction and purpose, not the other way around. I mean, so many of my friends that I've seen and I know I was this way at one day, you know, just think, oh, when I get there, when I've hit that peak, then I'll start being more mindful. I'll start giving back. I'll start doing it. And what I found is we just move the goalposts. We just want the bigger house and the second country club and the, you know, the, the cruise and those kind of things. We, we don't get satisfied. We keep moving, moving the goalposts on ourselves. And if we don't get that, we need to be happy and, and purposeful now, no matter what our financial situation is. And to me, that involves something that tugs at your soul and your heart. So the giving back and making that is, it's like gives you something to live for. It isn't like money is something to live for. What can you do with it? You know, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. It can make a lot of big difference. But if, you're, if your sole goal is just to have a pot of gold, my experience is that once you have that pot of gold, you don't know how to act. You know, you just want a bigger pot of gold or, you know. You thought you thought you just wanted to fly, then you needed to fly first, then you needed to fly private, and then you needed to go to the moon. You know, it's right. an evolving, it's an evolving desire, you know, is is just really hard to, to quench. So I think it's more than that. And of course, we have to be careful. I mean, my book, Profit with Presence, of course we have to make a profit, but profit's not a purpose, you know. What is your purpose? Profit is a result of having a purpose-driven organization that's fulfilling a need. So we have to be careful of that. We have to be, but but just to have a business that just makes profit, what good is it really if it isn't leading to happiness and joy and making a difference in our communities? So I get the question and I can't say I haven't fallen down in the trap and lost some money a time or two when my heart ran me into something, but I can also say it's been worth the journey, you know? To find where can I meet those two? Where can I make, where can I really fulfill my purpose, make a difference, and make a profit? It's hard to see that while you're young. You don't really see it till much, uh, much later. And even when you impart it to somebody younger, it takes a while, especially when they're trying to build a business. And all they can do is focus on survival and then trying to grow that business. Yeah. It's hard to do that, as you found and even write about in the book. You write our attention span are at all-time lows. Why is that, and why is that a negative? Because we're driven for distraction, you know? We have so many distractions. Business has, has gotten us, you know, has found ways, started with, you know, advertising schemes, and then it's moved into internet and social media, and everything is trying to get a piece of our attention. Every business is looking at how do I get at people's attention? How do I move it? How do I get them to look at my thing? And the only, so everything's pulling on this distraction and it's not going to get better. The only thing to offset that is our own resolution, our own declaration that I'm taking my attention back. I'm going to be in charge of my attention. I'm going to know, you know, and I'm going to limit my social media. I'm going to limit, you know, what I, what I do. I'm going to make some time without my phone. I'm going to spend some time in nature or whatever it is that I can take my attention back. Because I think our attention at all-time low because our distractions are at an all-time high. And we don't have, like used to be, we'd spend some time in nature. Unless you're really working at it in this society, you're not out in nature. You know, just seeing flowers bloom and, and trees grow and rivers run. You know, they have to make it, that has to be a really intentional focus to have that. And nature has has a whole different plan for us than, you know, social media does. Uh, so I think it's that business is so good at making us distracted. And we've become resigned to it. I've just decided I'm not going to be resigned to it. I'm going to bucket. What are you doing and your company doing to match and measure up to what you write about in the book? Well... I'd say number one is we allow family first, you know, that we allow that we know people come to work for their family and we know the job has to get done, but it's okay if you got to leave and go take care of something or you're coaching a team to work that out or whatever that, 
families comes first. Second is that community service is integral into any valid business structure. I think you're only as good as the community that you're operating in. You know, real estate, that may be a more local community for some, but national community, whatever your community is, your business is only going to be as good in a real estate context. Just look at some of the cities and the problems we're having, like in, in the urban areas in San Francisco and some of those areas. You know, if we're not investing in those communities, the real estate values plummet. So we believe in uh, a lot of nonprofit service work, both because of the mindset that it gives you, you know, and a mindset of gratitude and action. Also, the difference that it makes is, is changes your mindset and makes a difference. It makes the community stronger. And lastly, it's because the connections I make when I'm out serving others are much stronger and lasting than connections I make in just a transactional business relationship. And then those, those, those relationships are huge. It's not the reason to do it, but they are what sets your karma and long-term give you opportunities way beyond what cold calling does and some of those factors. So that we, we uh, you know, we're a strong believer in, in taking time during our day for nonprofits doesn't have it has to be after our family's taken care of and our jobs are done but nonprofit work can be a big situation so i'd say those are some of the ways we're trying to walk the walk and it's not you know we have we have trials and we have recessions and everything else and have to make tough decisions and when we do we try to be very compassionate very mindful about it People have become very judgmental. I mean, worse and worse because of social media. I mean, people have always been judgmental, but mm -hmm. now they're feeding each other on an international basis. What do we do to stop people from judging with scant evidence? Yeah. Well, judging is incredibly efficient. You know, it's quick. And we and we need to judge sometimes when we're, you know, making decisions on what to move, but it's become like it's just our default way of being is judging and labeling. And what is it, what's at stake with that is once we judge, we know and we stop having an open mind and we stop listening, you know, because we already know. We're listening. Uh, uh, Stephen Covey says, you know, the average person doesn't listen to understand. They listen to respond. And it's like when I judge, I already know and I stop listening so that I can't, I'm not open to the other person and that they can have anything to say. I know everything about them. They fit underneath the label. So I think there's a tremendous cost to humanity from, from judging. I mean, we're all, we all do it, but it's like, can I notice that I'm doing it and set it aside and say, okay, but I'm going to listen to this person. I'm going to see if this person has, it's not everything that person is. What, what are the redeeming factors of the, you know, this person? What if I just listen to them? What do they have? What can I learn from this person, either about them or myself? So one of the huge costs of, of the judging and labeling is, is reducing people, not really seeing them as a person, but just having them under that label. And we stop listening. We stop listening and we stop having a genuine dialogue. And that's where the divisiveness just ex ex as exacerbates. Uh, what do you mean success is a mindset, not a destination? Similar to what I said before, I, I mean, I think that success is a result of, of being happy. And success as a mindset is it's just not a result of, hey, I've got my MBA from Harvard. Or, you know, I made this and I sold my business for X million. Because if we usually want those things because of the mindset they bring us They bring us happiness, peace, joy, satisfaction. But my, my, my uh, experience and those a lot I work with is those things, just that pot of gold isn't what makes us happy. It's the mindset. So success is a mindset of generosity, of gratefulness. And around those things, I'm more likely to take the actions to have material success too. If I'm, if I'm open-minded, I feel happy, I feel successful, I'm more likely to you know, step out and take some risks, some prudent risks, or not to take a risk that isn't prudent just to look good, you know, then that. So I think success is a mindset, not a destination. It's not just a place to get like, I retired. Well, yeah, but did you make a difference? Are you happy? 
etc. I think especially uh, our kids' generation, they watch how hard we worked and they're not signing up for that. My oldest has a global communications company and she works up, but she said, dad, weekends are for me. I'm not doing what you do, which is work Sunday through Friday. And then occasionally, sometimes you're sprinkling in Saturday. No, that's just out of, you're out of control. And I hear entrepreneurs uh, say that younger entrepreneurs say, uh, especially if they came from a family of entrepreneurs. Uh, you write working hard and doing the right thing is, is supposed to give you the best shot at happiness. But you write, that isn't true. Uh, please explain why you write this. Uh, uh, this is a lie. Why, why do you say that? Well, I talk about a cultural lie in the book. Right. I mean, we've, we've been taught that if you work hard and, and study hard in school and go to the right schools and get the good grades, then land the job, then land the, the, you know, the, the spouse, have the family, let, get the house, you get to a vacations, you know, someday we get to be happy, satisfied. Content. Someday. <laughs> In my experiences, that's a lie that culture has taught us to consume, th- make things and consume things. And I'm an economist too. So there's nothing wrong with that. And it can, you know, the things that yield from economics to, to some more material success and to bring you know the common normal mandate of people up is undeniable but there's more to being happy than just producing things and consuming things so i think that's a cultural lie that we've been talked by and and just say you know at some point i mean the science tells us it used to say over eighty thousand with inflation is probably a hundred thousand now that over that dollar amount we don't get happier we just get more things so it's an acknowledgement of that, and there's nothing wrong with all the things. There's nothing wrong with a ski condo or a trip to Europe or a trip to Vietnam, and it's all great until we've decided that our happiness is over there. My experience has been my greatest trips are where I bring happiness to it. If I can be happy on the way there or similar playing golf, one of the greatest lessons I learned was, you know, bring my happiness to the golf course. Don't go out there and look for, you know, three shots that are going to make me happy the rest of the day because three quarters of the time I, I end up, you know, disappointed and upset when I leave. Can I bring happiness to the situation? Can I bring happiness to work? To me, that's success. Cause that's why most people, we want the success. Why do we want the financial success? Cause then I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. But the truth is we all know happy people that ha- aren't, don't have a lot of money. And I know a lot of very successful people that aren't happy, successful oh, people yeah. in monetarily. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying you can't get there without this mindset. What I'm saying is be really happy and content with it is a different mindset. Success is a mindset. Uh, You write that we are independent, but have interdependence, such as how do we get people on the opposite sides of climate control and gut management, acknowledge each other's views and compromise to work together for the greater good. What are we talking about here and how, how do you make that happen? Well, we're independent in a relative sense. You know, I'm an independent person. I made, you know, I went out and paid my way through college. I started a business. I, you know, this, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm independent. But when you think about it, you know, I, I, I need air to breathe. I'm dependent on food or I starve to death. We know we're dependent on other people. We're humans. We need contact. We need relationships to survive and be healthy. We're just, we're, we're more dependent, interdependent than we usually, and especially if you talk on an absolute basis. So, but independent relative to somebody else, sure. But we also have to realize our independency. So, and for instance, I could be, you know, uh, totally savvy and, and have solar you know, into my carbon footprint and have solar energy and not, and recycle everything and be like, hey, I'm just, you know, Nanu with the sustainability. But if I'm the only one in the neighborhood or the community or the world is doing that, I'm still going to get flooded out, burnt down and overheated and have the hurricanes come in. You know, I'm interdependent on what everybody else is doing, even though independently I make those right decisions. So to me, I think we have to acknowledge that we're all in this together, you know, 
that just me getting my pot of gold and getting out and, you know, getting a house and building a fence around it isn't going to be enough, you know, you know, I'd have to leave the planet so I can find someplace safe to live that we're, we're dependent on each other. And sure, I have some independent, you know, things that I can do relatively, but we need to communicate together, live together to move the world, talk together about each other, stop judging so much because we are totally interdependent. Our survival really is, is based on interdependence with others. You write, as many of us agree, that the planet is in dire straits. I mean, some people disagree, but every day you're seeing uh, these uh, weather storms uh, that are uh, you know, crushing uh, societies around the world. What are some of your recommendations to course correct? Because you talk about that in the book. Well, it always has to start with ourselves. You know, we always we always have a uh, tendency to go, oh, if this person would just do that and that person would just do this. So number one is, you know, get our own house in order. Make sure that we're doing the the things. And so that's a number of things. One is, you know, what what are our, if it's a climate change thing, what are we doing? What car are we driving? What are we, you know, how are we doing it? And then just our way of being is, am I being more mindful? Am I being more conscious about what I'm doing? Am I listening to other people? Because once I start that, if I really am, I'm automatically changing that other person. You know, just because I show up in someone that listens to them or pays attention to them or counts them in. So number, number one, I think, is really have an inside. It's an inside job of am I doing my work? carrying my weight to be a human that is for, you know, sustainability for my family, for my community, you know, more than just for myself. And then the other is, you know, give back what you can. Once you get to a spot where, where you're, you're taken care of and your family's taken care of and you can do things and where else can you contribute? What can you, where are you volunteering? What, who, what are you helping? What are you doing in little ways? And not little things that you're always rewarded for or thanked for, but just, you know, are you giving back where you can? And that's probably enough. I mean, just if everybody, you can't control everybody else, but you control, you can you have a better job of controlling yourself. If everybody took care of themselves and did a little extra, you know, then it wouldn't be long to climb out of this thing. But if it's only a few people carrying the load and, and a lot of people just running for the top of the hill, I mean, I, I, I think it's, you know, going to take a long time if we get there at all to dig us out of this hole. Uh, in the book, you talk about the importance of being present, which this whole conversation has had a lot to focus on. How does one do that, especially a hard-charging Super A personality? And I think they Super A personalities, which I think you're one, I'm one. Totally. We probably need that the most. Absolutely. As I said, I'm not in this work because I'm enlightened. I'm in this work because I need it. I run 150 miles an hour, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'd say the big thing is that so many people say, I just don't have time. Right. Or they try it a little bit. I, I think people try it uh, too long when they first start. I think it's a process. And I, I say when we start people, we start them with two minutes of meditation over a long period of time, maybe three gratitudes, you know, and build up to it. In our program, we take, you know, six months to get people up to 10 minutes. So it starts small, be consistent. It starts with an intention. You know, I'm going to be more mindful. I'm going to be more present. I'm going to be available. I'm going to take the time with people. And also, you know, if you don't think you have the time, chart your time for two weeks and just highlight any time during your day that you waste time, that you're distracted and you're not focused. We waste so much time. And what I've found is once people start down this path, they become more efficient. They can get more done in less time. So more time opens up for them. But when they first start, they add this on to everything else. It's like they had a list of 15 things to get done in a 10 thing day. So everything's not going to get done. Oh, I'll add 16, 17, 18 on. That. That's not going to help. You got to find a way to do it, to fit it in to your existing day, to work it into your existing day. Start small and be consistent. 
And over a period of time, and I'm not talking days, I'm talking months, years, you'll find yourself being more efficient, more focused, and wanting more and be, and getting more done in less time. So I'd say start small, be consistent, and be resolute, you know, have an intention of, of I'm everything that we do of consequence is a practice and takes a commitment and takes time. The real thing is then they make it into a habit, right? Yeah. It's got to be a habit in the end. And our commitments and our habits reinforce ourselves. What I have, we always make commitments and our habits are over here and our commitments over here. It's hard to fulfill a commitment. My habits don't back up. So I got to, I got to modify habits, get rid of some old ones and bring them. So my habits and commitments, if they're in line, you know, when I take that vacation and I fall off or the, the, you know, the tsunami hits or whatever, and I fall off a little bit, those commitments get me back on the horse. And when my commitment's a little bit weak, I don't think a day two, the habits hold me up. So commitments and habits are like a reinforcing thing, but they take, these are countercultural habits. They aren't habits like watching Netflix binging that you can get in 21 days. This is a habit of, you know, there's countercultural that a lot of times we don't have the support community when we start. So it takes some time to build up, you know, so take some time with a commitment and, and start small, be consistent and figure it's a process that's going to take a while. And as the more you get of it, the more you'll want. So true. You write your biggest job is getting over yourself. What do you mean? And how do young people with early success do that? And uh, please share uh, Matilda Faust's mindfulness practices. Yeah, you know, it's just arrogance. You know, um, I I just have, you know, and, I, and I, I'm a fairly, I mean, I'm not saying this egotistically, but I, you know, I'm a pretty intelligent person. In a lot of ways, in some ways, I'm not. I mean, I'm not real scientific and some of those things. I, I But in most things around business came pretty easy for me. And uh, when I've had the most success is when I just all get over myself. Don't just set myself aside and don't think of myself as someone that knows. Because there's so much I don't know. And be a little more, have some humility with it. And, you know, uh, that just to me has made a huge difference. Melinda Fouts wrote an article in Forbes. She talks about just the, the power of uh, not judging, having more compassion and acceptance. We don't generally accept ourselves or others. And when we don't accept ourselves, we aren't totally open with awareness. You know, if I can accept myself, Carl Rogers said in a famously, who's a psychologist said, you know, when I accept, accept myself just as I am, then I'm ready to change. But when I don't accept myself or I'm not, you know, fully accepting of others, then that really reduces and accepting the big one of the big lessons I had. Acceptance doesn't mean that I'm okay with it. I'm just acknowledging what is. I'm accepting it's the state of play. And once I accept it, then I'm much more likely to be able to get around it and do it than if I'm just in denial about it. And there's nothing, there's also nothing bigger gift you can give another person than accepting them the way they are. Doesn't mean necessarily that there isn't room to grow or something that could change for the better, but it's just acknowledging what is and saying, I love you just the way you are. To change, great. You know, but if you don't, I love you. You write leaders are born from purpose. What do you believe that? Uh, why do you believe that? And is that why entrepreneurs? all over the world exists that they are primarily purpose-driven as opposed to financially driven? Well, there's probably both, you know, financially driven, just really smart people. But I believe that purpose-driven, people have a lot of times finding, have problems finding motivation, for instance. You know, I can't get motivated or I can't get my team motivated. And what I've found is that generally that motivation is around purpose. If I really have a reason to spring out of bed in the morning, you know, and I'm not talking about just to make a pile of jack. Now that might get me out of out of bed, you know, depending on my motivation. But I have just found if I really believe in what I'm doing, if I can really get in touch with my heart and my soul, and I really believe in what I'm doing, I think you find that people are leaders that you would never think they'd be leaders. They just step into it. And I also reject the model that says, I'm a leader, just give me a circumstance. I'm going to step in and lead this group, whether it's, you know, mothers against drunk driving or a hunger drive or running a business or whatever it is. I'm just a leader wherever I am. 
I think that, you know, real leaders are also followers. You know when to follow. And in other situations, when you're really motivated and you see the light and you see the way, you step into it and you go in that way, whether somebody follows you or not, and hopefully they follow. So purpose, I think, is what drives us. And, and we've spent, as I write in the book as well, is too many of us have accepted culture's purpose for us, our parents' purpose for us, our school's purpose for us. And we never spent the time we were so busy getting to school, getting the graduation, getting the job we needed and the family and whatnot, that culture has said, this is a successful life, that we never really looked in and said, what is success to me? What is it for me? Like, I mentioned I, I taught seniors at Colorado State University mostly for a good part of 20 years. Uh, and they would come in all the time and I'd say, why are you here? And they say, I don't know. Mom and dad said <laughs> they'd pay for it if it was engineering or business. Right. You know, and I'd say the next step is a job, wife, mortgage. You're going to wake up and be 50. Spend a little time right now. You know, why are you here? What do you want to accomplish? Who are you? You know, find your purpose in life spend some time with that because that is what's going to enable you to to feel like you're making the difference that you want to make that you're motivated and that's how i think leaders are born leaders are born of purpose not just of they're not just born genetically hey i'm a leader they're they're born real leaders have a real purpose a real mission to the deliver and they just step into it in the book, you talk about intellectualism, which allows you to experience something new. Most people have that, that when they are young and over time, that causes them to stagnate. Businesses go through the same thing. How do you get yourself out of that rut? It's practice, you know, practice being present, spending time in nature is a great way to do it. Some other, you know, yoga helps me do it. Uh, meditation helps me do it. I don't know. Everybody's not up, not, doesn't want to do that. I don't think everybody has to meditate, but somehow we've got to get just in that we're, we're beings, you know, we're not just thinking Ken Robinson, a intellectual, I like passed away a year or two ago is to say, you know, our, our bodies have begun become something that just carry our heads from meeting to meeting. It's just to be, be more aware. I mean, and we can't figure our way out of everything. You know, we think we can, but, you know, some of the smartest people have the most trouble because they, they, they've always had that to rely on. But, you know, trying to connect with your kids or, you know, another person or yourself is not just an intellectual feat. It's, it's you know, a way of being. It's a consciousness. It's a being aware of someone else. Why do people, especially men, have midlife crisis when they should be at the top of their game and knowing who they are and what it, and what's your advice on resolving it? Well, I'll double dip back on success and happiness. You know, the success is a mindset. I, I think I find that people have got to the top of the mountain. What their culture has told them is success. You know, they've gotten the cars and the family and the, you know, things, and they're still not happy. They haven't found purpose or satisfaction in it. You know, so they've just gotten this is they just get to an empty place and say, I've done everything. I've been I'm exhausted. I've done everything I was supposed to do. I've worked my butt off and I'm still don't feel successful or happy. What is it? What's going on? And that leads to a crisis. Many of many times, hopefully that leads them to for an inward journey to finally say, hey, I know. And like for myself was that was it. I just I went on a journey and said, I don't care what it takes. I'm getting through this. I'm not going to feel this way. I want to feel better. You know, I don't want to feel empty. I want to feel full. I went back. I didn't really know why I was doing it. I went back to university on a search for it and teaching and those kind of things. And eventually, you know, found this path, which to share mindfulness with the business community is something as a purpose for me to feel like that could make a real difference. If you don't feel like you're making a real difference, if you're stagnant, I mean, it leads to crisis. You yeah. don't know where to go. We, we haven't been trained to deal with it. You know, our, our, our systems have not trained us to deal with it. They've trained us to make things and consume things. Uh, but I think your earlier point about that, we were taught you're supposed to be happy by having all these things, you know, getting married, having kids, having the house, having the beach house, uh, a good paying job, and then realizing what was it all for at the end of the day, you know, that you're, you, you, you don't feel any purpose and you're wondering 
did you waste the first you know, first half of your life? Yeah. And it and yeah. I think that's what frustrates a lot of people, especially people who, um, you know, you and I are entrepreneurs and we probably feel less frustration than most because we've gotten to do what we want to do. But most people, was it 73% of people hate their job? And, well, your job, you spend more time doing your job than you do uh, with your significant other and your kids. So if that's so, not making you happy, you got to think about changes for that. Well, and the idea of I'm going to go to, I'm going to work hard 10, 12 hours a day, then, then I'm going to go home and be happier then I'm going to go home and be mindful, but I'm going to drive all day long, I think is, you know, a fool's errand that you have to find a way to be happy all day long. It doesn't, and that doesn't mean we don't have to do some things that we don't want to do, you know, balance and checkbooks and, you know, financial statements and all the stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's what it's all about is to have that that inner that inner discussion, that inner journey of what makes me tick, what makes me happy, what do I want to accomplish? Because we've just followed the yellow brick road of the society to say these these connect these dots and then you're happy. Well, we found it's not true. You know, we found it's not true. People are depressed. People aren't happy. People are disgruntled. People are distracted. So, and it's an individual journey, but we haven't, we haven't, I mean, one of the things that we run, why I wrote the book is to try to share the tools. These are tools that can help you on this inner journey to find yourself. And it isn't like, I, I, I reject the notion as it's either profit or presence. You know, I can either be happy or profitable. I reject that. I think you can have everything. You can do both. You write about the law of attraction, which is whatever you send out into the universe, you'll get back as a scientific fact. How do you gear your mind to that type of positive thinking when you're going through a professional or personal lull, believing that better times are ahead? I mean, sometimes when you're so down, all you do is see the train coming down the tunnel. So how do you, how do you manage to handle that? Well, it takes some confidence and it takes some faith and it takes some experience probably of doing it long enough to see some results. But I think it's how you set your karma. What you put out of karma is, you know, cause and effect. It's not good or bad, right or wrong. It's what have I set out there? You know, have I put the, the energy out in the universe? And, and then am I aware enough? The other thing I find is without some awareness and presence, we see all kinds of opportunities come that we haven't noticed. We were so set on getting on getting exactly what we want that we haven't been open to what actually is being provided. Like, for instance, some of the best projects that I've come across were a result of losing money on another one, learning something from that, being willing to cut it off, and then something else great comes from it because I was aware enough to and confident enough to say, okay. I'm cutting that off. What did I learn? I find I've learned on everything I've done. I've learned something. I've met somebody or I've learned something. I haven't wasted any time. Now, I have I have projects that I've regretted? Yes. But in the end, when I look at them, they've led me to somewhere. I've learned something about that that's led me to something better. So I'd say looking at everything that it's an experience of it and to be really aware that yeah, I send signals out and I'm a believer in goals and visions and those things. And I set those things out, but I'm also aware that that may not be exactly what I get back, but I'm setting a positive intention out in the universe. And if I put positive energy out in the universe and then I'm aware of what happens and I'm willing to be flexible enough to ride a different colored horse, if it comes in, man, there's, there's so many, there's so many opportunities out there may not be exactly what I thought I wanted you know, but might be better. I think you're right about when bad things happen or the, or, or the outcome wasn't what you hoped it would be. Uh, if you don't manage the mindset of now I've learned something new or I now I've got a better idea or the world didn't end, uh, you're going to find that life can be crushing if you don't ha have that kind of mental mindset. Uh, Garth, you, Garth Brooks wrote, I think he wrote the song. God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. You know, if I can look at how many things that, that I didn't get what I wanted, and I'm so glad I didn't, because what I got was way better than what I wanted. And if I'd gotten what I wanted, I would have really been crushed. 
Uh, you know, I, my, uh, I'm here in Vietnam now teaching at Vinh University, but I had applied to another school to run their SBDC program, their small business development program. And if I had gotten that, I wouldn't be here in Vietnam. And as I mentioned yeah. to you today, I won my first teaching award, which really is very gratifying. And I wouldn't have gotten to visit six countries uh, yeah. over the last few months. So I think everything is meant to be, uh, and everything that happens to us is kind of pre pre-ordained uh, for us. I just really believe that uh, based on 62 years of seeing how things have turned out. Uh, you write about finding your professional element. How do you do that, especially if you have significant financial and, uh, financial and family obligations? Well, you know, the element is, you know, finding out what you're really good at and you really like to do. You know, like some people are really good at math, but don't enjoy math or are really good at something else. I like to sing as a kid, but I was no good as a singer. I didn't make it on that, that route. Right. So the element is where are you really good at? Now, sometimes you have a job and, you know, you can't find that, but you're in a situation where you're raising a family and you need to get through college and do those kind of things. So you then you have to find that outside of work and find enough energy and time that you get that juice. But if you can, and especially if you start it young enough, you can find that you, you find out what you love to do and figure out a way to get paid for it. You know, you find a way to get paid. I have a friend that just Randy Russell that just finished a book, Getting Paid to Be You. You know, who are you really? And find a way to make a living, you know, doing what you love. My dad always used to say, learn to love what you do. And if you can, great. There's, there's a lot of, you know, can you start looking for different things in what you do, too? But start being, most people have something which they're very present in, they love to do. It might be fly fishing. My wife is painting. For me, it's snow skiing. Find, my, my advice is to find that one thing that you really love to do. And maybe it was something you did as a kid, but it wasn't rewarded, like music or art or something. Nature is a big one. Find the other, get that feeling. And then what I try to do is how do I get that feeling at work where I'm spending most of my time? How do I get that feeling? And that's flow. How do I get that feeling at work? And it's not that I don't have to do some things that I don't want to do. I do. But how do I come into that flow as much as I can, which is the zone in sports? And how can I get that during my day at work? How do you teach young people to keep their word when every day they read successful business people sued for not keeping their word and look at integrity as a disadvantage? I teach your word is power. You know, when you when you're someone that someone knows when you say it, it's going to happen or you're going to come back to them and let them know why it didn't happen. Then people trust you. And that's how I, I say, because I'm in real. That's how I move buildings across town. That's how I can walk into a city meeting and have and the planner knows that I'm not going to, you know, when my banker knows that I'm not going to uh, double cross them or embarrass them. That I'm I'm my word. I, when I say it, it, it happens or, you know, I come back and own that up and, and, and clean it up that your word is really all you have, particularly in a, well, professional and personal relationship. No way. If, if you're, if you're somebody that someone can't trust, then they always have to back you up. They have to find someone else that backs it up when you don't, it's not efficient and they're not going to, you know, rely on you. So I teach young people that your word is your power. And it takes some confidence in that. It takes a one that's uncertain while saying I can't do it. I have found that what happens for me is I'm much more reluctant to agree to something. I don't, I don't respond right away that I'll do something. I'll sleep on it often and not afraid to say no because I've learned, I've taught myself that I'm a person. If I say it, I do it. So, and that's power. That's how you accomplish things. You write that negative feelings from past relationships can sabotage new ones. I, I see that all the time. That plays into personal as well as business. How do you get rid of that baggage so it doesn't impact future opportunities? Forgiveness. You know, forgiveness. Finding ways to forgive, not take things personally. No, we're not as important to others as we think we are. Most of us are thinking about ourselves. So people aren't usually out just to hurt you. They're taking some selfish thing on their own and it's happened to impact me negatively. And I take that personally on me, but to stop taking it personally, 
forgive and move on. Doesn't mean that if somebody has done something to me, I'm not prudent. I don't watch out. I don't put myself in a situation where they could hurt me another time. Doesn't mean I have to reconnect with the person. But if I don't forgive, then that's residing in me all the time. And I take that with me like baggage everywhere I go. I go to another, oh, I'll never trust them. I'll never trust that. They're going to cheat on me. Or in business, I won't trust that because I won't. And I've been double-crossed, you know. But I have found that if I, 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 it's not success to take that and hold that against people who haven't double-crossed me, who I have trusted and, and they've been worthwhile. Makes me appreciate them more. You know, and also I find when I've gotten double cross, I've usually had a role in it. What have I done? Why did I set myself up? How how was I naive or how did I enable the person? What happened? So really looking at my own role in it, forgiving. Not that I and I learned something from it. Try not to put myself, but don't hold it against people that didn't double cross me. You know, appreciate them more. What are successful people like yourself good at when developing long-term relationships? Why are you good at that? Uh, I'd first say it's, it's uh, Harvard just came out with a study uh, last year that said the, the key to happiness they found, they did a 70 year long study was long-term relationships. And I found, and they're starting, they're retiring now, but my title person, my CPA and my attorney were all people that I've worked with for about 40 years, all met in my first couple of years in business and have worked with them and several of them have retired recently. But um, so it's hugely important. Uh, I would say that you put, you're able to put the person ahead of your personal business goal. You know, you're able to actually look at them as a person, get to know them. Be willing to have personal discussions that aren't in your, you know, aren't just benefit your business. And also at sometimes have conversations, you know, that this is, you know, might be detrimental to your business. Uh, but you know, long-term that you're confident enough and successful enough that you can have honest conversations with people. And in the end, that's when it comes back to you because they're also, that opens them up to have an honest conversation with you to tell you things that you may not see. You know, we all have blind spots, things that we don't see about ourselves. One of my big ones for a year was anger. You know, I was angry. I was running things through anger. And I, I found out through some feedback that I was angry and it was hurting me, you know, in a lot of, a lot of areas. And I went to work on it. It can also help you uncover your blind spots. So just don't, don't be a, you know, don't hold on to everything. Like every little thing is going to be the end of your career or the end of success and be willing to face it. And say, you know, sometimes this is just the right thing to do or say, even though, you know, profit for the moment be damned. You talk early in the book about how entrepreneurship can close the divide in the world and improve Earth's prospects. Can you share some of your thoughts? Well, we talked a little bit earlier. It's creativity. You know, it's the power of capital flow and creativity and creative destruction. I mean, look at, look at some of the beautiful things that have happened. Uh, and maybe AI may be the next one. And, I, and I'm not that I'm not nervous about it because I am. And I, I believe it needs to be regulated. And, uh, and that's things. my next question for you, by the way. That's my last question for you is artificial intelligence and its role in fostering good when I see like many uh, well-meant inventions can be disastrous. So combine them uh, for your final answer for this evening, for today. Um. What do you think about yeah. AI? You know, uh, well, I'm not a, I'm not a big techie, you know, so I, I may not be the best one, but I certainly see the potential of it. And I also see the negative part of it. But most things, you know, have a good and bad side. Right. Like Social media isn't necessarily bad. I'm connected with people that I went to high school with that, you know, I never would be now. But then I get into some of the other stuff and I go, oh, my God, what am I doing here? So most things have a, a you know an edge, and it's us realizing it. And can we take the good and notice the bad, you know, and find ways to minimize the bad and accentuate the good, not just letting it roll out no matter what happens. So I think it could be tremendously, tremendously powerful. 
But I also think we have to be careful that man's value is still work. I mean, are we able to work? And I, and I don't mean just head work, but our ability to work with our hands and create things and do things is part of being human. So we also have to be careful that we don't, don't limit, our, limit ourselves to being intellectuals, you know, and served in everything we do. Because our actual, I think that one of the biggest downsides is we think we just don't have to do anymore. And I think that is fraught with the problems that are us actually contributing and doing things and making things as part of what makes us happy humans. So that, that, that I want to be careful of. That's why I know plenty of guys who work into their 90s, not for the money, um, but to fit, have a sense of value themselves and feel like they're giving something back. Um, yeah. Eric, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed your book. It made me take a step back and think about things. And I think we never stop learning or realizing that, uh, you know, uh, life is a constant journey and every day you're working on yourself all the time and never stops. You think it would by age of 60 or I'm 62, but it doesn't stop. Yep. Enjoy your weekend. And thank you so much again for taking the time. Mark, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate what you do. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.